And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf, and joining me on the phone line today is Dr. E. Calvin Beisner. And Cal, it's great to have you here. Thank you very much, Dan. I always enjoy being on the program with you. You know, uh, there was a news item earlier this week, I believe it was on Monday or thereabouts, that was concerning the UN, the United Nations, and they came out with another statement about climate change impacting the entire planet, raising the risk of hunger, uh, floods, conflict, and it was a a very alarming report. And I got thinking, you know what, Um, this is very timely. Perhaps we can have a discussion with Dr. Beisner and get some, um, some better understanding here as to maybe what is behind this report. Um, Before you start, Cal, there was a quotation. I went right to the UN website, and uh, the UN Secretary General, Ban Ki-moon, said the report confirms, and I'm quoting, that the effects of human-caused climate change are already widespread and consequential affecting agriculture, human health, ecosystems on land and in the oceans, water supplies, and some industries. I'm wondering maybe we can start there. If you could help us understand maybe what is this human-caused climate change? I'm I'm really concerned about his use of that phrase. Uh, (laughs) And you ought to be. The difficulty, Dan, is that really this is an incredibly complex issue. Uh, it's very difficult to to summarize things briefly about it without uh, vastly oversimplifying. And in fact, that's exactly what uh, the Secretary General himself did with that statement. Uh, there are some sorts of human-caused climate change that are absolutely real. Uh, for example, uh, um, when people uh, deforest a large area, that can cause a long-term change in the regional climate because forests hold water. They also uh, put water back into the atmosphere through evapotranspiration through their leaves and so on. Uh, So that can make a uh, very significant local or regional change in climate. Uh, Another example, um, when you have a lot of people move into an area, and little by little you expand the number of roads and homes and uh, business buildings and industrial buildings and so on, you can greatly increase the demand for water, the consumption of water in that area, uh, while not increasing the provision of water in that area. And consequently, uh, you will more readily have drought. Uh, uh, But at the same time, you can also more readily have floods because when a heavy rain hits, uh, the water doesn't absorb into the ground because so much of the ground is covered by blacktop and and buildings and so on. So you will then have more water running off into streams and raising the stream levels above flood stage. That, again, is a local or a regional change in climate, and that's truly human-caused. So the oversimplification in Ban Ki-moon's statement is that he doesn't distinguish between local or regional man-made climate change and what really is the topic of discussion from the United Nations on this, uh, specifically from the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and that is global climate 
change. The notion that by adding carbon dioxide and some other greenhouse gases, but primarily CO2, to the atmosphere, uh, man is causing the atmosphere to warm. And they specifically uh, mean not just a tiny little bit of warming that really is basically theoretically calculable but is not even observable. They mean a dangerous amount of warming, warming that would cause rapidly rising sea levels, uh, that would cause uh, widespread droughts in some areas, widespread floods in other areas, uh, and various other things that, that would be severe uh, changes to uh, local and regional climates because of a change in global climate uh, that would result in uh, very great harm to human beings and to the rest of life on Earth. That's what they mean. And when it comes to that definition, the fact is that uh, there is a great deal of reason, a good, solid scientific reason, to question whether any such thing is going on at all. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Um, there's a word here, IPCC, not a word, but... Um, An acronym? Oh, acronym, yeah. What does that stand for again? That's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And that name, by the way, is, is a helpful reminder... Uh, it's an intergovernmental panel on climate change. Mm. It is put together by the governments of uh, over 100 nations that are involved, and the membership in it is determined by bureaucrats whose mission is to promote the environmental and energy and economic policies of whoever are the leaders in politics in those countries at the time. That means it's necessarily going to be the case that the makeup, the makeup of that panel will be considerably politicized. It, further, it's important to understand that in producing what the public tends to see, especially what uh, politicians and uh, journalists tend to see, which are what are called the summaries for policymakers of the occasional reports that come out from the IPCC. It's not just scientists who are involved, but also representatives, political representatives of the governments of these countries around the world. So consequently, especially the summaries for policymakers, and then all the press releases that come out about those, tend to be highly politicized documents and can stray very far from the often actually quite good science in the much, much larger and uh, highly technical reports that underlie them. Mm. Well, all this is very um, interesting, and it's also a bit troubling. Um, What we do need to do is take a short break. Today we're talking with Dr. Beisner, Dr. E. Calvin Beisner, and I, I didn't mention it before, but you are an expert witness, really, in, in uh, a number of matters, including science and the economics of climate change policy. Um, you've been before the U.S. Senate Environment and Public Works Committee and the Energy and Environment Subcommittee of the U.S. House of Representatives uh, Committee on Energy and Commerce. You've briefed the White House Council on Environmental Policy And so uh, you're just a real natural to talk about this, and I I really appreciate you being with us. Um, To our listener, please uh, stand by as we take a short break, and we'll be right back. 
We'll be right back with our program in just a minute. Now a reminder that your gifts to this ministry enable us to bring you thoughtful, Christ-centered programming 24 hours a day. Would you prayerfully consider helping us with a tax-deductible gift this month? Redeemer Broadcasting is a 501c3 not-for-profit broadcast ministry. We're entirely listener-supported and have no advertisements. If you would like to help support us this month, and perhaps in the future, our mailing address is Redeemer Broadcasting, Post Office Box 1520, Olive Bridge, New York, 12461. Once again, Redeemer Broadcasting, Post Office Box 1520, Olive Bridge, New York, 12461. Stay with us now for the second half of our program. And welcome back. You're tuned to A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the phone line with us today is Dr. E. Calvin Beisner. And he's an interdisciplinary scholar specializing in the application of biblical worldview, theology, and ethics to economics, and environmental stewardship. And uh, before we go much further, Cal, I'm wondering if you can uh, let our listener know um, you've started a group that's available on the Internet. And if they would like some information, maybe even while they're listening here today, uh, maybe they could check out your website. What is that website? How do they get to it? Well, our own website is cornwallalliance.org. That's cornwallalliance.org. We are the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. We're a network of about 60 evangelical theologians, scientists, and economists who are committed to promoting simultaneously uh, biblical earth stewardship and economic development for the very poor. Think in terms of, say, sub-Saharan Africa and the proclamation and defense of the gospel of Christ in a world that is permeated by an environmental movement whose worldview and theology and ethics tend to be uh, very much anti-Christian, whose science and economics often are very poorly done, whose policies, therefore, often really don't do much good for the natural environment, but are very harmful to economies, especially to the poor, Uh, and that have a tendency to twist the gospel and other aspects of Christian teaching. Mm. So we try to address all of those things at once as as a group in an interdisciplinary way, bringing together the insights of theology and science and economics. And one of the quickest ways for people to get familiar with us would simply be to go to us on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash Cornwall Alliance, or just simply look for the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation on Facebook. And uh, if they can come to our page, uh, like the page, then they can begin commenting on the page or posting articles themselves. There's a lively discussion going on there every day, and we would welcome your your listeners to get involved. Mm. Oh, that's wonderful. And um, let's continue now. Earlier this week, um, we came across a report from the UN, the United Nations, and uh, the UN Secretary General, Ban Ki-moon, was commenting that um, the effects of human-caused climate change are already widespread, etc. And then he went on, and he was saying, substantial reduction in global greenhouse gas emissions must be made. 
And what was missing here, as I briefly read it, was um, the cause and effect being proved. In other words, he's making a connection, or he's he's asserting a connection exists between human-caused greenhouse gas emissions and this climate change that's being observed. And I'm wondering if we can discuss that just a little bit next. Yeah, it's a, it's a good idea to do that. Um, the, the difficulties, again, are fairly <laughs> many and complex. Uh, first off, um, he's assuming that climate change basically means uh, an increase in global average temperature and that that is coming primarily from the human emission of greenhouse gases, especially carbon dioxide, into the atmosphere. The difficulty with that is that although computer models tend to support that hypothesis, actual real-world observations do not. Uh, The models tend to uh, support the notion that, say, for doubling the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, which would take it from... 2.8 parts in every 10,000 in the atmosphere to 5.4 in every 10,000 in the atmosphere. Um, For doubling CO2 content in the atmosphere, we would see an increase in global average temperature of about 3 degrees. That's according to the models. The problem is that observation doesn't support that. Uh, We've seen greater changes in global average temperature in past periods, just as, as rapid um, without the increase in CO2 uh, that we have seen uh, in recent years with the increase in CO2. And that means we cannot be sure that it was the increase in CO2 that caused it. Uh, further, the increase in global average temperature that we have seen over the last roughly 30 years or 35 years has been actually uh, less than a third of what the models have predicted. And so consequently, the warming effect of CO2 must be smaller than what the models have, have predicted. Mm-hmm. And that's why, in fact, climatologists all over the world have been scrambling to recalculate what they call climate sensitivity. Well, if the, if the disastrous effects trumpeted by the UN of warming... Uh, depend on how much warming takes place. And if it turns out that the warming from added greenhouse gases is only a third or less of what the models had predicted, then the effects are going to be less as well. And in fact, there's a lot of evidence that uh, moderate warming, as opposed to extreme warming, moderate warming, say, of 2.5 degrees Celsius or less, would actually be very beneficial by lengthening growing seasons, by expanding poleward the the areas where effective agricultural production can take place, uh, by increasing rainfall uh, and thus reducing desert and so on. Uh, There are lots of good effects from that, Uh, even the simple fact that we would have fewer cold snaps, uh, which kill about 10 times as many people per day as do heat waves. Uh, so there'd be lots of benefits from moderate warming, and that appears to be the actual impact of the greenhouse gas contributions rather than severe warming. Mm-hmm. The Secretary General also was talking about, he was citing actually some observations. He's citing um, shrinking glaciers and 
species migration, uh, dwindling crop yields, a rise in vector-borne diseases, and he's using this as uh, quote-unquote clear evidence of the need for the international community to make better adaptation and mitigation choices. I'm still troubled by the connection he's making. Yeah. You know, if he's observing a shrinking glacier, uh, how is that? Help me understand how is that related to the carbon dioxide that I produced yesterday? Well, it's certainly not related to what you produced yesterday. Uh, but, of course, you know, what they're claiming is that it's related to the, uh, the carbon dioxide that we have added to the atmosphere over the period from the Industrial Revolution on. Mm. And clearly, we've added. Uh, around the time of the Industrial Revolution, uh, carbon dioxide was about 280 parts per million in the atmosphere. Today, it's about 400 parts per million in the atmosphere. And most of that difference probably came from our using fossil fuels, uh, coal, oil, and natural gas, uh, as energy sources. Um, the question is, how much warming comes from that? And as I said a moment ago, the answer is probably very little. Uh, in fact, um, uh, probably the most, most careful study of this, of this question uh, to date is one published recently by uh, Nicholas Lewis and Marcel Kroc. Uh, and they conclude that instead of doubled CO2 possibly causing uh, in the neighborhood of 2 to 4.5 degrees Celsius of warming, it would cause instead uh, perhaps 1.25 to about 2.75 degrees of warming with 1.75 as their best estimate. Well, that's actually a good range. That would be very good for the Earth and for mankind hmm. as well. But you see, as you, as you note, the, the shrinking glaciers are not themselves evidence for man-made global warming. They are evidence of warming, perhaps only local warming, because that can happen over time uh, as ocean currents change uh, and they change cyclically, uh, and as uh, human use of the landscape changes as well. I mean, that's how Mount Kilimanjaro lost most of its glacier was that there was great deforestation around it, which resulted in a lack of, of evapotranspiration, uh, which resulted in less rainfall or <laughs> snowfall at a high enough altitude, which meant that the melting at the edge of the glacier that has always happened wasn't replaced by as much new snowfall higher up. So that's how some glaciers can disappear. Now, the fact is we've been, we've been rising out of what was called the Little Ice Age, which extended from around 1350 to 1850, for the last century and a half. Uh, ice melts as temperatures rise uh, above freezing, whatever it is that causes the temperature to rise. So the, the glaciers are not evidence of man-made warming. They're evidence of warming, either global or local, uh, and then we have to do other research to find out what's causing that warming. Mm-hmm. Okay. There's another name here in this article I was reading, Vicente Barros, I think his name is, uh, the co-chair of the working group number two. Yes. And he, too, was asserting that we live in an era of man-made climate change. So this this opinion seems to permeate the U.N., when they talk about climate change, that is, that it's uh, man-made. Yes, and frankly, 
there's something not quite genuine about that kind of language, Dan, because I, I don't know any uh, skeptic of global warming caused by human emissions of greenhouse gases who would deny that we do see man-made climate change. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem is the oversimplification, failing to distinguish among local and regional and global climate change, failing to distinguish between climate change caused by changes in land use, uh, for instance, urbanization, or uh, putting something under crop use instead of forest, or deforestation and things like that, versus putting greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of oversimplification that, that obscures very important distinctions in the discussion. Now, what's really too bad is that it, it looks to me like uh, <laughs> Ban Ki-moon and others, uh, as typically happens in their communications to the press and the public, they go well beyond the findings of the underlying scientific reports. Uh, what, most of the, uh, what most politicians and journalists see is press releases, a few of them will go beyond those and read the summary for policymakers of the various major reports that the IPCC puts out. But hardly anybody looks at the underlying scientific reports, which run in the you know, 1,500 to 2,000 page range, and they're highly technical. But the summary for policymakers invariably is far more alarmist than the underlying scientific report. And then the press releases are far more alarmist than the summary for policymakers. And even the underlying scientific reports, precisely because, as I discussed before our break, the makeup, the, the uh, members of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change are selected by governments to represent those governments' uh, preferred policies. Even those underlying scientific reports tend to... Uh, to lean in the direction of alarm. And there's, there's a reason for that. Uh, politicians like to be thought of as solving problems. That's how they get reelected. And if you say, hey, there's no real problem here, well, then you don't get to make such claim. So there is a natural incentive for politically determined bodies to voice alarm so that there's a problem to be solved so that the politician can get reelected. <laughs> that is so true. Um, we're almost out of time. I was just um, pausing and thinking about our, our own area. We live in the Hudson Valley area, yes. Cal, and um, years ago there was a large company um, upstream, upstream of the Hudson River that was truly polluting the river. Uh, that was General Electric. And uh, they just so happen to own MSNBC, which is also co-owned with Microsoft, and a bunch of other assets. And uh, it always strikes me odd that um, when we talk about real pollution occurring, we often don't hear about what actually happened to the Hudson River with GE. But uh, that's kind of like a, a bone of contention that's not brought up anymore, but it's it's a strange irony. You know, we're made to feel guilty. The average Joe on the street is made to feel guilty because he's heating his house with fuel oil, 
while uh, GE gets off, as it were, scot free. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's just, you know, it, it's just, it's not a fair world. We know that, but yeah. I just had to say that. Now, we are at a time, suppose a listener would like to learn more. I know that you have a very interesting, I haven't seen it yet, but you have an interesting lecture series on DVD. Um, perhaps that would be very helpful to yes, some of our listeners. Uh, maybe you could uh, describe that in closing. Yeah, Resisting the Green Dragon is a collection of 12 lectures plus a documentary video uh, on the worldview, the theology, the ethics, the science, the economics, the politics, the uh, uh, you name it, of environmentalism uh, that presents, in contrast, the secular and non-Christian religious environmental movements with the biblical teaching on what we call godly dominion, which is men and women created in the image of God working together to enhance the fruitfulness, the beauty, and the safety of the earth to the glory of God and the benefit of our neighbors. Uh, this series uh, reveals the, uh, the uh, often poor science and economics of much of the environmental movement and it shows how that movement uh, undermines human dignity uh, and, and actually contributes to disrespect for human rights and for, for life, for liberty, for property, and so on, uh, but shows what real responsible stewardship of the earth is really all about. Uh, so Resisting the Green Dragon is the title of that DVD series, and uh, people can and see more about it at resistingthegreendragon.com. That's resistingthegreendragon.com. We also have a companion book. It's not a duplicate by any means, completely different author and totally independently produced. Uh, but it's also titled Resisting the Green Dragon with the subtitle Dominion, Not Death. Resisting the Green Dragon, Dominion, Not Death by Dr. James Oneless. Now, oh, that's beautiful. Well, I hope that... Uh, dear listener, if you're out there uh, and you want to learn more about uh, environmentalism and also the Christian understanding of uh, dominion in this world that God has given to us as his people, by all means, try to get a hold of this DVD series. Cal, thank you so much for joining us today. Dan, thank you very much, and the Lord bless you. And you too. For Redeemer Broadcasting, I'm Dan Elmendorf. A quick reminder, please join us next week at the same time for another edition of A Plain Answer.